If you have attended a university in the past five years or so, or perhaps are about to, or live near one, or work in one, then you know that one of the hottest issues stirring up campuses is the question of how best to respect and to accommodate the perspectives and also the sensitivities of students who belong to traditionally marginalized groups. Forty years ago, it was fairly straightforward. Most students, most, came from basically similar backgrounds and were not likely capable of saying anything in a classroom or in a dorm that would make another student in the group feel attacked or erased because of their membership in the group that he or she, usually he, came from. But it is different uh, when today's campuses Uh, are more diverse than ever before, at least in certain categories of identity. For minority students, for LGBT students, for female students, should colleges provide so-called safe spaces in which they know that they won't, while they're in those spaces, be exposed to speech that wounds in such an existential way? And if so, how should those spaces be designed? Or does going that way at all come with more pitfalls than benefits? Canceling out the ethos of free speech and robust discussion that most people would say is the key component of education. Well, we think in all of this, we have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel in Banff, Canada, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. And now a reminder to our audience to cast your pre-debate vote if you have not done so already. Use your mobile device to go to the URL iq2us.org slash vote, iq2us.org forward slash vote. You have a prompts there to vote for the motion, against the motion, or undecided on the motion. We're going to keep that first vote open now for just a few more minutes. And I want to let you know uh, that at the end of the debate, we'll have you vote a second time, and it's the difference between the first and the second votes that determines our winners. It's the difference. So our motion is trigger warning. Safe spaces are dangerous. Let's meet the debaters here first, the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome David Hudson, Jr., David, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You're a professor of law at Vanderbilt. You are the author, uh, co-author, co-editor of more than 40 books, including Let the Students Speak, a history of the fight for free expression in American schools. Uh, you're also First Amendment ombudsman for the Museum Institute's First Amendment Center. That is a lot of First Amendment going on in your life. So what sparked your interest first in free speech? John, it was very personal. I uttered a phrase in one of my high school classes uh, and was asked to leave. I, I got kicked out of class. So that, uh, that censorship incident is what inspired my interest in That's speech. so interesting. All right, well, thanks very much for that insight into what got you going. And can you tell us, please, who your partner is in this debate? Yes, it's the great Suzanne Nossel. Ladies and gentlemen, Suzanne Nossel. Suzanne, welcome also to you to Intelligence Squared U.S. You are CEO of PEN America. Before that, you were COO of Human Rights Watch, Executive Director of uh, Amnesty International USA. You also served in the Clinton administration, the Obama administration. You were Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations. Uh, The organization you're at now, PEN America, 
uh, released a, a widely read and commented on uh, report on the state of campus free speech. What prompted PEN America to, to even look at college campuses on that point? Yeah, we were worried that the two sides of this debate were talking past each other, which I know we're not going to do tonight. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Again, the team arguing for the motion. And we have two debaters arguing against. Please welcome Ash Bhagwat. Ash, welcome. You are a professor of law at UC Davis. You've written a number of books and articles on a whole wide range of legal topics, including constitutional law and free speech law. Uh, Most recently, you're the author of a book called The Myth of Rights, The Purposes and Limits of Constitutional Rights. So, Dell, are are our rights a myth? To quote the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Bill of Rights is more like guidelines. Um, (laughs) You have rights, but they mean a lot less than than most people think. Oh, how interesting as well. All right, thanks very much. And can you tell us who your partner is? Um, Michael Roth. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Roth. (laughs) Michael Roth, uh, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are right in the middle of all of this. You are president of Wesleyan University. Uh, You're a public advocate for liberal education. You're the author of several books, including Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters. You've been a professor of history. You still teach Uh, and the humanities since 1983. That's 35 years by our count. Um, And you've described sort of your summing up scholarly interest as how people make sense of the past. What does that mean exactly? I'm very interested in how people carry around their memories, how they work within traditions, sometimes how they deal with past traumas. Um, And I'm extremely interested as a teacher to understand when I have students in front of me how they bring not just that morning's... uh, breakfast with them, they are also bringing their past, their memories. Okay, well, I see some relevance for tonight in that. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion, please. One more (laughs) round of applause. And so to the debate, we will start with round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Suzanne, you can make your way to to your place on stage. Speaking first for the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. Okay, great. So any debate has to begin with the definition of terms. So the Oxford Dictionary defines safe spaces as, quote, a place or environment in which a person or category of people can feel confident that they will not be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or any other emotional or physical harm. Key to that definition is freedom from emotional harm. If we were talking only about physical harm, I don't think there would be much room for debate. No one thinks campuses should be places where assaults, hazards, or other physical harms uh, can occur. Relatedly, I don't think anybody could argue against safe spaces categorically. If I lie on a hammock reading or romp in the backyard with my pet, I'm not going to be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or other emotional harm. Nothing wrong with those kinds of safe spaces. Likewise, at a Shabbat dinner on a college campus, an iftar celebration, or a meeting of Bernie supporters, freedom from emotional harm might be virtually assured. Freedom of association mandates that those groupings, Black House, Hillel House, are perfectly permissible on campus. Clubs, teams, and religious associations are a vital and vibrant part of university life. The key is that students enter into those settings voluntarily and that the bonds that unite them and the span for disagreement are things that the students navigate themselves. And I really don't think there's much disagreement about those kinds of places. The use of the term safe spaces that has provoked controversy and what we're really here to discuss tonight has two elements. One is where it obtains. 
Is it to large swaths of a university, a whole dining hall, a residential college, a classroom, or even, as some have argued, a campus as a whole? Places where students have no choice but to be. The second contentious element is the idea that administrators or institutions should be charged with policing or governing what speech is permissible and what is out of bounds. Now, to go back to the definition, if that policing were limited to harassment or discrimination, there'd also be no room for argument. Federal and state civil rights laws and precedents require that both public and private colleges protect students from unlawful harassment and discrimination, and those are legally defined terms. So if it were simply a matter of, of enforcing those second settled legal requirements, we wouldn't need the concept of safe space. It's those other elements of the definition, exposure to criticism or any other emotional harm, Those distinguish enforcement of a safe space from simply upholding legal protections. And that's really the crux of the matter tonight. For a university administration to assume the obligation to protect students from criticism or other emotional harm would be dangerous, I argue, for six reasons. I'll go through them quickly. First of all, focusing on enforcing safe spaces is a dangerous distraction from the university's core role. Kids come to college to gain skills, exposure, connections, and networks. If colleges concentrate on enforcing safe spaces, that's going to detract from their responsibility to afford students the opportunity to deal with difficult ideas in uncomfortable situations and build the confidence they need that they can survive. The goal of the university should be to make students feel secure and supported enough so that they can tolerate some emotional and psychological discomfort, not to eliminate such discomforts entirely. Second, enforcing safe spaces can exacerbate dangerous divisions in our society. Our society is deeply polarized. By sealing off large parts of the campus to guard against certain ideas and viewpoints, we're going to make that problem worse. We foreclose the possibility of engagement and bridging of differences. Third, defining safety is vague and inherently subjective, running the risk of viewpoint-based discrimination. A safe space that's safe for supporters of the Israeli government could feel very unsafe for supporters of Palestinian activism or vice versa. A space that's safe for religious Muslims may feel unsafe to critics of Islam. For universities to adjudicate such spaces runs the risk of First Amendment violations for public universities and a betrayal of purpose for private schools like Yale. Fourth, declaring safe spaces can leave students dangerously exposed once they graduate. If students believe they need and should expect intellectual and emotional safety on campus, they may be frighteningly ill-prepared for the world they encounter thereafter. Fifth, the conflation of speech and violence is dangerous. Use of the terms safe and unsafe inevitably blurs into questions of physical safety. Some argue safe spaces claiming that speech in itself can constitute an act of violence. But if we accept that, if I say something that, you have, that offends you, you might be justified in punching me in the nose. That escalates confrontations unnecessarily and dangerously. And finally... The emphasis on safe spaces is triggering a heavy-handed backlash from state legislatures and the Department of Justice that could endanger inclusivity on campuses. 17 U.S. states have introduced legislation to police speech on campus, and the Department of Justice has intervened in a series of cases. If you don't believe that government intervention of free speech is the answer, you should vote against uh, or for the proposition that safe spaces are dangerous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne Nossel. And the resolution again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, please welcome Ash Bhagwat, Ash Bhagwat, law professor at UC Davis. Thank you all for being here. Um, I am going to try and convince you that safe spaces are not new. They're not unusual. 
They are not really about college campuses, and they are not a sign of weakness. <clears throat> My basic point is, is that all of us are used to safe spaces. They're places to regroup, to gather with people we like, to gather with people we trust, and think together. We call them home. We call them churches. We call them clubhouses. I call them beer night. Um, but it's a standard part of human nature. Um, free speech is important. I believe in free speech. I've made a career out of writing about free speech. But nobody believes that everyone should be exposed to unlimited free speech everywhere and anywhere. And once one accepts that idea, one accepts the idea of um, safe spaces, which is why you should vote against this mo motion. Most obviously, all of us are going to go home. In my case, tomorrow. I'm going to hang out with friends and family. That's a safe space. I expect it to be a safe space. Everyone, my opponents in this debate, feel the same way about their homes. Um, that's a normal part of life. Now think about students at a residential campus. Sure, part of the reason they're there is to learn, to debate, to be exposed to new ideas, to learn how to refute ideas they disagree with. But that campus is their home. And indeed, it is their home in a more full way than even my home. I don't spend 24-7 at home. I leave for my job. They are on campus 24-7. If we all expect to be able to go to a place and feel safe, why shouldn't they? They are, after all, young people. They have the same rights as we do. Furthermore, when we talk about safe spaces are not limited to home, we often meet with people outside of home. We go to places where we know we'll be comfortable. The idea that college students, the only safe space they're entitled to is their tiny little dorm room. I have seen dorm rooms. You can't have much of a safe space there. It's more like a safe crouch. Um, that's just not plausible. You need spaces on campus. You need spaces in your home area. And I have no trouble with the idea that college administrators can accommodate that by designated parts of campus, not all of campus, I'm not, I think that's going far too far, but parts of campus, rooms, buildings, as safe spaces, because that just gives students the same things that all of us assume we have. So, what about free speech? The First Amendment protects free speech. But the First Amendment, as Sam said, also protects freedom of association. And that is what I am talking about. What I'm talking about when I talk about gathering together with like-minded people, people you trust, people you agree with, is in fact freedom of association. It is within these intimate associations that we develop our ideas. We develop our strategies for how to communicate our ideas. We decide what we believe in. We decide what we don't believe in. Speech does not come out of a vacuum, and human beings are not autonomous entities. We are social animals, and we develop our ideas together in these safe spaces, call them associations. And that is why sometimes associational privacy trumps freedom of speech. Think of it this way. I want to gather together a group of people to discuss ways to defend immigrants' rights. I might do that in my house, but I might do that at a seminar room at my law school, because that might be the best place to do it. Are anti-immigrant activists allowed to walk in and express their views? No. Those places, even if it is a part of a college campus that I work at, is a safe space. I work at a public campus. It is governed by the First Amendment, but it doesn't matter. I still am entitled to use that safe space for my own purposes. And I think part of what's going on is the safe spaces debate has become conflated with the debate over controversial speakers on campus, usually conservative speakers, triggering protests. Those are separate questions. I do not think. Sometimes people have said that the entire campus should be a safe space and therefore it's the same issue. That goes too far. And they're driven by completely different concerns. I think that the 
the safe spaces debate is driven by a desire to be left alone, which I think is perfectly reasonable. The controversial speakers debate is driven by anger, about anger over ideas that students believe, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not, to be out of bounds. I think we really need to separate those two questions because the, the, the controversial speaker stuff is complicated. I will say this, though, about the controversial speakers. Speakers have a right to speak, including controversial ones. They're entitled to come onto campus. Let me be very clear about that. Students have a right to speak against them. There are free speech rights at issue on both sides when protesters protest speakers. Obviously, violence is over, over the top. And obviously, university administrators have the difficult job of accommodating those two interests. But that's a completely different matter. Safe spaces, I think, are standard, normal, and students are entitled to them. So please vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you. Ashbag Watt. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. You can make your way to to the stage. Debating for the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here is David Hudson, Jr., First Amendment scholar and law professor at Vanderbilt University. Ladies and gentlemen, David Hudson. Good evening. Thanks so much. Safe spaces in the sense of safe spaces that protect students from offensive or disagreeable speech are anathema to the First Amendment and the freedom of expression that we all hold sacrosanct. Safe spaces infringe upon core fundamental First Amendment principles. The first one is the so-called marketplace of ideas. It's traced back to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in his dissenting opinion in Abrams versus United States in 1919. When he wrote, But when men have, real, when men have realized and fighting faith, they have come to believe that the ultimate good desired is better reached through free trade and ideas that the best test of thought is the freedom of the thought to get itself accepted into the competition of the market. In the United States Supreme Court, in Caetian versus Board of Regents in 1967, proclaimed that the college classroom is peculiarly the marketplace of ideas. If you have a safe space, then you are preventing certain ideas from entering the marketplace. And that conflicts with core fundamental First Amendment principles. The second principle is the counter-speech doctrine. And the counter-speech doctrine essentially means that when we are confronted with harmful, obnoxious, and even repugnant speech, our first response should not be to censor that speech, but to counter it, to show why it's wrong, to come up with a better alternative, This theory is traced back to Justice Louis Brandeis, a contemporary of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. In Whitney versus California in 1927, he wrote, if there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evils by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. The problem with safe spaces is it leads to the silencing and suppression of speech. We don't want that. We want more speech. 
The third core f- fundamental First Amendment principle is that the First Amendment protects a great deal of offensive, obnoxious, and even repugnant speech. And the United States Supreme Court has expressed this eloquently many times. For example, Justice William Brennan in 1989 in a case called Texas versus Johnson, which involved an individual, Gregory Lee Johnson, who burned an American flag in Dallas, Texas, outside of a political convention. Justice Brennan wrote, if there's a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because it finds it offensive or disagreeable. The idea of shielding Students from ideas directly contradicts that principle, right? We want to protect offensive and even disagreeable speech. That's how we learn. The fourth fundamental First Amendment principle is that a lot of speech is in the eye of the beholder. What's agreeable to one person may be disagreeable to another. Justice John, Marlin, Justice John Marshall Harlan II expressed this principle eloquently in Cohen versus California in 1971 when he famously wrote, one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. Right? What is offensive to some people may not be offensive to another person. That's why these safe spaces, safe spaces are dangerous. And then just think about human history. Sir Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, Albert Einstein. They were all ridiculed, ostracized when they first issued some of their theories. If we had safe spaces, would we shut all those great thinkers down? No. We want speech to enter the marketplace of ideas. We want to counter negative speech with positive speech. We want to protect even offensive, obnoxious, and repugnant speech because that's the essence of who we are, and that's the essence of education. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David Hudson. The motion again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Our final speaker and he will be in the opening round who will be speaking against the motion, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Roth. Thank you. There, there are a lot of good ideas out here, and I don't know if this is actually a marketplace or not, but clearly um, there are strong feelings on both sides of this issue, um, and the issue can be distorted so that... Um, Uh, it's easier to take a stand. So no one is really arguing that all students all the time should be protected against any disagreeable idea. Nobody has ever argued that. That's just never happened. The idea of safe spaces uh, originated right after the Second World War. actually comes from corporate America. Corporate America said, you know, one of the problems with the business world today is that people who work at my company are afraid of telling me the truth. So I go home, I'm the president of Wesleyan, and I go up to say, what do you think of how I'm doing at Wesleyan? And people say, oh, you're doing fine, sir. I say, you don't have to call me sir, just call me President Roth. (laughs) And they don't actually tell me the truth. So after the Second World War, some good social psychologists, mostly from uh, Central Europe, came along and said, what we need here is a safe space. That's the words they use. They said, we need a safe space where employees can say, you know, President Roth, you've got your head in the wrong direction. 
You are looking in the wrong places. You are paying attention to the wrong things. You're adjudicating things you don't know about. And they could do that without fear of retaliation or attack. That was the definition of a safe space. Still works pretty well for me. You can speak your mind without fear of retaliation or attack. When I was a student at Wesleyan in the 70s, it was pretty normal for professors to come to class and think if they were a male professor and co-education was pretty new at Wesleyan in those days, they said, well, I'm a nerdy 28-year-old. Uh, I want to have sex with someone who's 19. My students are available. So they used their powers of free expression to comment on students' legs, on their attire. I have a, a student just call me from my era a few weeks ago and said that her professor asked her to come and see him about her thesis. And she was honored. And she said, yeah, I was probably silly to be honored. I said, no, you weren't silly to be honored. She didn't know what he really wanted to do was to take her out and to take her home. Now, he said, I'm just exercising my professorial duties. I care about that student. Or as one of my colleagues said to the provost not too long ago, I want to just take the relationship to the next level. Yeah, safe. we need a safe space for a guy like that. We need a safe space so students can learn, so they can tolerate disagreement. When I was a young professor at a school where there were almost no African-Americans, one of my best students, an African-American woman, she would routinely have professors ask her about the black experience, and other students go up to her and say, can I feel your hair? They, they didn't mean any harm, but she felt it was an unsafe space. Not because they were disagreeable ideas, but because people weren't treating her as a person. When I start my philosophy in film class, which I teach pretty regularly, I say to my students, tonight you're going to watch a film about genocide. It's horrible. There are images in this film that should turn your stomach. Next week, you're going to watch a film about murder. Police officer is brutally gunned down and the wrong guy is sent to jail. It's a documentary. The third week, they call it Monday Nights with Roth, How to Ruin Your Week. We watch these films on Monday nights. The third week, we're watching a film about child abuse. And I tell them this because of my experience of teaching this course. Some of them are so shocked at the movies that they can't handle it. So I tell them this in the first class. that If you can't handle genocide, murder, child abuse in the first three weeks of the semester. This is not the course for you. Take another course. I'm not changing the course. We're going to talk about these issues and how to tell the truth about them. But if you can't handle it, it's not the course for you. And then I tell them, jokingly, and if you really love this stuff, get help. (laughs) Because I want them to say, oh, it's going to be hard, but actually we're in this together. We're supporting each other. It's safe enough to disagree. It's safe enough to tolerate real painful subjects, and what may not be so painful to me might be very painful to another kind of student who has a different kind of history. So I urge you to vote against this motion that safe spaces are dangerous. Thank you, Michael Roth. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. 
where our motion is, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they also take questions from me and from you, uh, members of our live audience here in Banff, Canada. Um, The team arguing for the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous, uh, Susan Nossel and uh, and David Hudson, are telling us basically that... uh, Protecting people from speech is anathema to the purpose of a university, um, that what's offensive is always, always going to be in the eye of the holder, and that is very, very problematic. They point out that laws are in place in terms of harassment, uh, that uh, further enforcement is not needed beyond that, that laws would take care of harassment and definitely of assault. They make the very strong point, and I think everyone on the stage agrees, that we're not talking about literal violence, protection from violence when we're talking about safety, but we are talking about issues of emotion. Emotional harm. Uh, the team arguing again for the motion that they're dangerous feel that um, that students will be graduating into a world in which they have not been prepared for the harshness of that world because they have gone through an experience of being coddled. That it's one thing to uh, support students enough so that they feel. Uh, not totally discomfortable, uh, uncomfortable all the time, but it, it would be the wrong thing to eliminate all discomfort all of the time, that that would be to the detriment of the process of education. The team arguing against the motion, Ash Bhagwat and uh, Michael Roth, are, first of all, they make the point that uh, safe spaces are nothing new. It's not a wild concept. They've existed in business, but they've also existed in the daily lives of all of us, that that's what home represents to all of us, and that a campus is 24-7 home for students, and that therefore it is totally reasonable to expect some parts of some campuses some of the time to represent safe spaces. They point out uh, that the issue of controversial speakers is probably beside the point, and they also, to a degree, uh, suggest that their opponents are caricaturing the concept of safe space, that no one is arguing that all students all the time should be protected from all offensive speech. So those are the, the rough dividing lines between the two sides, and there's a lot to unpack here, and I think we can work through it point by point. Uh, and I, I want to start with the question going to the side arguing for the motion that you've made the point, you made the point strongly that we're talking about emotional harm, not physical harm. But I think that I heard your opponents arguing that emotional harm is a real thing, truly debilitating, truly toxic, and can be as disruptive to the process of being in a safe learning environment and, and uh, destructive to the process of learning as, almost as much as a punch in the nose, that it, that it can really ruin an ability, a student's ability to exist and participate in the process of learning, that it's a real thing. Emotional harm counts. So, Suzanne, why don't you take that on? Yeah, I think... Speech can cause harm, and emo- I believe I agree that emotional harm is real. But that's where I think our harassment and discrimination laws come in. I and I did not say we don't need to do more to enforce them. I think uh, additional efforts to enforce them are necessary and beneficial. But that's where the focus should lie. I think this concept of safe space, for all the reasons that we've delineated, is so malleable. Uh, you know, one person's safe space is the other person's you know heart of danger. And I just don't think this concept helps. I mean, we don't have to prove safe spaces are always dangerous. If you think about what's classically dangerous in our society, explosives, firearms, tornadoes, they're not always dangerous, but we know they can be dangerous, and so therefore we classify them as dangerous. And I think we've said a lot to show that this idea of safe spaces can be dangerous. But, but, to, but to their, again, to their idea that, that uh, an insult, um, the, the examples that uh, Michael Roth used of the black uh, woman in his class of you know, people wanting to touch her hair made her feel, I'm assuming you're saying, alienated and separated and, not, and, and, and it uh, made her feel, he used the words literally, unsafe. 
do, do you not credit that student's experience of feeling unsafe? You know, I think the word safety I might quarrel with because I think uh, it, it definitely denotes this question of physical safety. And I think eliding that and confusing the, the line between being upset, being offended, affronted, and being actually unsafe is unhelpful. I do think it contributes to... Okay. Uh, a sense of victimization uh, that isn't helpful. But I certainly think speech can cause harm. If it rose to level of harassment, then absolutely the university needs to step in. So we're talking in a sense about how much harm, and in the example that, that your opponents just gave, uh, Ash, why don't you take that I off? have to say, I, the reason I disagree with that is because, in my view, the law of discrimination and the law of harassment are really narrow. The kind of, I mean, if you read the cases, the kind of behavior you need to prove to actually make out a case of harassment is extraordinary. Um, and it's simply not, it's not enough. I mean, and the, and the whole idea of safety, I mean, semantics matters, I guess. But I don't, you know, when we're talking about safety, we're talking about feeling like you belong. Um, and I think consistent emotional harm, which tends to be suffered by minorities more often, makes you feel like you don't belong. And that, I think, is a, is a problem. David? Oh, by the way, I mean, those of you who are applauding, don't be tepid about it. Go for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go, go full-throated, or whatever the hand version of that would be. Uh, David? Well, look, look. the First Amendment is not absolute. right? There are some narrow, unprotected categories of speech. You don't have a First Amendment right to utter a true threat. You don't have a First Amendment right to engage in fighting words, which is a very narrow category. You don't have a First Amendment right to blackma- commit blackmail or extort money from someone. But when we allow the government to go down the dangerous, slippery slope of defining what speech is harmful enough to be censored, censorship is a bad thing. But David, can, can I come back to you? I, I want to let you explore that point a little further on, but, but to, to stay on this focus of just d- detailing what we all mean by what is unsafe, since there seems to be a disagreement about that, and Susanna's addressed it in Osh. The, the kind of example that Michael Roth talked about of this student feeling alienated and, and, and literally unsafe, do you, do you accept or reject that definition of just a sense of unsafe? Well, it, it does hit close to home. My, my wife is African-American. She has very beautiful hair. Um, a couple people came up and touched her hair. Um, one of them touched it in a way that wasn't very friendly. She glared at them. It didn't happen again. Um, I do, I, I do, and I, I used to do employment discrimination cases. So I recognize that speech can cause harm. But if we allowed the censorship of speech anytime speech causes harm, that we run the risk of engulfing anything that's considered controversial, anything that's considered unorthodox, anything that, is, that stridently disagrees with somebody else's point of view. You know, they're defining safe spaces in this incredibly broad, I would contend, overbroad fashion. What we're talking about is safe spaces in which students are shielded from challenging, difficult, offensive speech. And are you talking, at this point, classroom, campus, dormitory, club, or all of the above, or possibly some of the above? It can, it can happen in different places, right? Okay. Let me just take it back to Michael Roth to respond to some of what you've heard. Well, I, I, I uh, think you're right that censorship is a, can be a, a slippery slope and that uh, you don't want to empower uh, people with authority to define what's offensive. 
Uh, you do want to empower uh, people who belong to a community to be able to tell you when they're offended and to be able to claim places where they can feel protected. So uh, it, we don't, we're not in a position where we have to wait for repetitive harassment to occur so it meets the de- legal definition of discrimination and harassment. We can actually be proactive because when students go to college, they actually are not signing up for a marketplace. They're signing up for a community. And in a community, you can have different kinds of spaces for different kinds of activities. You don't have the same activities in the locker room as you have in the classroom or in the fraternity as you have in the, in the chapel. And I think providing some students the ability to say, I will not be harassed in this space. I will not be attacked in this space. I will be seen as a member of the community in this space. That's a safe space, and it's not dangerous. What's dangerous is to make believe that everybody who comes to a university, like everybody who comes to a marketplace, is an equal uh, participant in transactions. And that's just not true. When you go to a school um, that has a history of discrimination and prejudice, and where you are a newcomer, and you're trying very hard to belong. Okay, Suzanne. Yeah, I don't think anyone's arguing that a student who is touched or dealt with in a way that's offensive has every right and absolutely should articulate that. Allies can come in and support of her. That, you know, to me, that's not a safe space. I mean, when you define safe space, you actually said it should be a space, space that's safe to kind of say what you, what's really on your mind. And, you know, you talked about the person who touched her hair. And you said they didn't mean any harm. You know, they're, they did this out of goodwill, ignorance, um, so it, you know, to me, that's a fundamental contradiction. If a safe space is a space where you could feel, you know, I could go out on a limb, I could say what's on my mind, you know, I wonder something about him and I'm going to, you know, name it and ask him to find out about somebody who's different from me. You know, if that's a safe space, then it, it's completely at odds with the idea of an institution, you know, say in the case you're talking about, uh, you know, bringing charges against someone, you know, who, who naively you know, ask someone where they're from or commits, you know, uh, you know, some other transgression that they're not even aware of. I mean, surely the way to deal with that is not having the university kind of come in and bring up, uh, you know, an inv- a civil rights investigation. Let's, let's yeah. go to some specific examples since we're talking about different kinds of safe spaces and just pick, pick one that I, I want to have us talk about. Uh, say, uh, uh, and this, this is happening on various campuses where members of a minority group will say, we want our own dorm. We want a dorm where we can let down our hair and be comfortable and not be challenged. Now, dormitories, you know, traditionally traditionally, uh, are sort of, they're general and they're generic. So this is, this is saying we want to take one part of what has been generic and make it our own. It's different from we want to have a club. This is we want to take a piece of the real estate and make it our own so that it's safe. What, what is your response to so that, Ash? I, I, don't, I don't know about dorms. I have some hesitations there, I'll be honest. Why? Because that's... That's a, a level of, of separation which I think undermines the community a little bit. But if you want a group, if you have a group that's defined by some sort of common feature who wants a space to meet, I think that's why think we're not... You're not talk- objecting to that. Not though. at all. But, no. th- I, but I think then we're conflating pl- the issues because that's a safe space. No one is... The, the question about college speech codes, for example, which is what um, you were touching upon, strikes me as being a completely different question. Um, leading to the question of how we define harassment and so forth. But nobody is talking about censoring public discourse, to use Robert Post's he's a Yale professor's position. That, of course, has to be uninhibited and wide open, to quote the Supreme Court. We're talking about being able to feel like there are times when you just want to pull back from that, that political world. And I think adults do it all the time. 
David? John, the problem is that this notion of safe spaces gets wrapped up into these other concepts. There's an environment on some college campuses of censorship. That's why we have the terms safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, campus speech codes, free speech zones. That's how come this term has come back into vogue. It involves the censorship of even political speech that others find disagreeable or offensive. Well, the, Michael Roth, we, we often do hear that, that the, that the pushback against safe spaces is coming from, from the position that they're promoted by a leftist agenda, usually, serve, uh, usually protect the interests of people who have a shared ideological position, which is to the left. And that that's, re- again, that's essentially, David is, uh, is repeating that sort of charge, that that's really what the safe spaces argument is about. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's what the safe space argument is about. I think the safe space argument is about um, building a community where people who have been marginalized over time can find uh, places where they can uh, find comfort in one another's company, uh, find inspiration in their uh, varied experiences, uh, but not to define the college experience as a whole as being one where you are cut off from antagonistic uh, ideas. Uh, safe spaces were vitally important for uh, gay rights. Um, they were vitally important for feminism. And I think they're coming up today on college campuses because college campuses have more students from underrepresented groups who are trying to define their own place on these campuses. They're not trying to censor other people. They are trying to find a way they can belong to historically white and middle-class well, institutions. to that point, I... I, I, s- I want to let that happen. <laughs> To that point, I, I, I saw a documentary several years ago about George Bush's time at Yale. And uh, it was some film that was shot at the time. And it, this wasn't George Bush in the sequence, but they were interviewing a young male Yale student at the time when all of the students at Yale were young males. And he and his friends were sitting around something like a living room wearing jackets and smoking pipes. And the student said to the interviewer, this is an amazing amazingly diverse place. He's from Montana, and he's from Connecticut, and this guy's from Florida. And, and, and my point in raising the question is that, is that Yale has changed. Most American campuses have changed. There is a clientele. There's a population there that wasn't on campus before. And the question is, do, are, are we struggling with this? Because there is a different population. There are people, as Michael Roth just said, who come from marginalized populations who are in a challenging situation where perhaps the old rules wouldn't have applied. By old rules, I mean say, what, say whatever you want because it's going to be very, very hard to make a Connecticut Yankee feel upset when you start making fun of him for being a Connecticut Yankee. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I mean, the demographics of the college population have transformed, and I think the colleges and universities are way behind in terms of really taking on board what that means, and they have to examine themselves. You know, there's a lot that's been done, but there's much, much more that has to be done. I think it's coming to the fore. I think this generation is demanding new levels of belonging, inclusion, and equality on campus. But I really believe the key is to realize that, to accept their demands, to address their demands, but without infringing on robust protections for free speech and academic freedom. I think that is the problem, the idea that this is a trade-off, that in order to make them feel welcome and included, we have to constrain speech. Speech, you know, whether it's, you know, in a dorm or on campus. I mean, as Ash, you said, 
you know, they're there 24-7. So, you know, if, if, if that's the home 24-7, that becomes an argument for a safe space 24-7 and campus-wide. So I think, it's, I think it's a very problematic concept, and we need to focus on achieving both of these goals, greater belonging and inclusion for minority students, but without the, accepting the notion that that must entail the curtailment of speech. Okay, well, I would, who would like to respond to the two of you? I'm happy to. I, I, I don't... I, I don't think there's anyone arguing for the curtailment of speech. When, um, when there were gay bars in New York before we had social media, um, um, uh, if you had made the argument, I have to close those bars because I, as a straight white man, uh, with my pipe, don't feel happy there, that, that, that would be ridiculous. When women uh, had take back the night marches where they could feel safe talking about their experience uh, living in a, a male-dominated culture... It would be ridiculous to say, well, they shouldn't be able to do that. We should be able to have the fraternity boys go in there and talk about their experience um, on the football field at the same time, in the same space as the women. We're not saying that those guys can't talk about their experiences in their spaces, but there can be some spaces on campus where people who have felt persecuted by the history of the very institutions we're asking them to belong to, those spaces could be places of solace, inspiration, um, and robust... What about the classroom? So the classroom would be one of those places. The, the classroom cannot be a place for robust exchange of ideas if people don't feel safe enough to be acknowledged as human beings in the classroom. They have to feel that they will not face retaliation or retribution, just like those people in the corporation. Let, let me read something that uh, I picked up uh, 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 last year. A, stu- a, us- a graduate of the University of Chicago published a piece in Vox. He, the title was, I'm a black U Chicago graduate, safe spaces got me through college. His name is Cameron Okeke, and I'm quoting this. He said, you want me to elevate mediocre conversations about race with my personal experience and critical lens? Then you better do something about the students who are muttering about affirmative action every time I speak. And, you know, I, I think what he's talking about is a cla- possibly a classroom debate where he, he felt... Uh, it suggests he felt directly threatened and undermined and his, the, the, the actual, his claim to have a place in that classroom undermined by people muttering about affirmative action. Now, the question would be, should that muttering about affirmative action have been ruled out of bounds in that classroom? Is it for David or... Either of you. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I know, I actually know Cameron Okeke, and I have his piece here, and I think it's a great piece. And you know, one of the things strikes me about it is, you know, even at University of Chicago, where they kind of took this, you know, very assertive position saying no safe spaces, you know, they didn't get rid of the multicultural house, which is the safe space that Cameron talks about being so central to his life on campus. I mean, I think he makes, you know, a very powerful potent point about... But, he's making, but this is... I, I agree with you, but he's making a... In this instance, he's talking about something, presumably, that happened in the classroom. And, and my question, he gives us a very material... Kind of exa- very material example. Tittering about, well, you're only... The suggestion is you're here because you, you don't deserve to be here, is, which would I, I, I imagine would be a very toxic Yeah, I mean, I think it that. could be perfectly appropriate should, for, should a that be stopped? for a professor to, you know, uh, you know, call for an atmosphere... Of respect, I don't think that's. But isn't that all speech. you guys are saying? You know, and people that's may, you know, people may come back against that. They may say, you know, we want to have a debate about affirmative action. I think the professor, you know, depending on what the class is about, maybe that's the setting for it or not. I don't think you can say questioning affirmative action. Period. Full stop is off limits in yeah, campus debate. Sure. It, you yeah, know, the I setting see. matters. How it was done matters. So I, I can give an example if that's okay. Sure. Uh, we had. Um, a protest at, Wex- at Wesleyan that was part of a national campaign. It was called the Affirmative Action Bake Sale. You remember this uh, a couple of years ago where uh, students were in the university center 
And they said, uh, if you're uh, an African-American, you pay 50 cents, and if you're a white person, you pay $1.50 or something along those lines. A group of uh, activists, uh, many of them students of color, came to my office and said, you should shut down that uh, protest because it, uh, it, it, it's m- making us feel unsafe. It's ruining our day. They're, they're disgusting racists. And I said, well, no, because it's, it's political theater, and you have to, you have to get used to the, the rough and tumble of ideas. So, um, and they went away less happy than they wanted to be, but they also had places where they could go, safe spaces by their definition and by their experience, where they could recharge, where they can find solace and inspiration. And so I see nothing incompatible with supporting free, uh, safe spaces and saying they're not inherently dangerous and also supporting um, the rough and tumble of argumentation in, public, in, in the public sphere. Where do we draw that line, David Hudson? Well, I think a lot of what they're talking about is freedom of association. The First Amendment does protect freedom of association, even though the five textually stated freedoms are religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. The First Amendment does protect the right to freedom of association. But I think what they're doing is their broad, monolithic, amorphous definition of safe spaces could be subsumed within the First Amendment right to freedom of association. What it should not be allowed to do and cannot be allowed to do is lead to the creation of intellectual safe spaces and the censorship of protected speech. Okay, I want to go to audience questions in just a minute. And the way that will work is if you raise your hand, uh, I will call on you. And if you can wait for a microphone to reach you, uh, I need, we need to be able to hear your voice. So please wait for the microphone. We'd appreciate it if you would tell us your name and then ask a very tight, focused question that advances the debate. But while we're getting set up to do that... Um, I just want to, um, actually, maybe, we, should we move straight to the questions? Is anybody ready with the question? Right down here in the front row. Again, a mic's being brought to you from the left-hand side. And if you could stand up, that would be appreciated as well. Sure. Thanks. My name is Michael Bloom, and my question is addressed to the side here that is uh, opposing the motion. I just want to be clear. Are you actually saying that a classroom can be a safe space in the sense that a student would be completely free from criticism, that their ideas themselves could not be criticized, and that those that would level a criticism against an idea held by another student in the context of a classroom could be censored, or that a student who says something uh, uh, in a spirit of uh, civility, uh, uh, makes a civil statement and tries to further debate, but one student in the class is in some way emotionally um, upset about that, that in that case, the student could be sanctioned because the classroom itself at a university is a safe space. Absolutely not. I mean, I run a classroom every day. Um, People disagree all the time. That's part of the discourse. That's part of the norm. No one is suggesting that. I don't think that, again, it becomes a, there's this question of degree, right? And a lot of it seems to me the argument against safe spaces is an argument that, well, if you go a little bit over the line, then immediately you can't express any ideas that anyone disagrees with. Nobody believes. No one's serious believes that. I mean, that's not... It's about what the line is. And every day, classroom teachers have to figure out what the line is. I think the example from the University of Chicago, that's over the line, right? Muttering about affirmative action simply when an African-American student tries to speak. That 
that's not that civil should be, discourse. That, that should be stopped. That has to be stopped. Otherwise, you're one. What about one something that's more substantive, not meant to be, uh, not meant in, or intended as an undermining position, but actually a closely held belief? For example, if there is a class with uh, a student who is a gay student who was recently married uh, to his boyfriend. And there's a student who, who speaks up in class, perhaps it's religion, perhaps it's philosophy, perhaps it's law, who just says, I think that that is uh, an abomination that should not be sustained. Is that, is that, now, that could be incredibly toxic to that individual, but the speaker is not speaking in order to attack that person or to put them down, but he's sharing his p- position. What happens then? So in, in my law class, I mean, I teach the same-sex marriage case because I teach constitutional law. That's out of bounds. That's not a legal argument. That has nothing to do, right? It's an abomination for reasons that have... But if you tell me why you think the Obergefell case is wrong as a matter of law, even if that might upset a student, that's completely... Well, there are, as you know, there are students who would, who would look to the Bible as their ultimate source of law, and I realize that's not the law that you're teaching, but if a person makes a reference to that, and I, and I know we're getting very hypothetical here, but I find it an interesting hypothetical. I'll it might be realistic. Example. Sure. So what I would do in that situation is I'd say, okay, you, from here over, you take that side, and from here over, you take the other side. Whatever your real view is. So you would not stop the conversation. You would, you would go deeper no, into it. No, if there's a substantive issue, as, as, th- as there might be in that case, depending on how it was expressed, if it wasn't just, you shouldn't be married because you're, you're not a full human being, mm-hmm. that, that, that would not be, uh, we wouldn't debate that. Is, is Joe a full but, human being? But okay. Michael, would, I mean, would, how does that square with your own definition? I mean, I gave it, you gave a very different definition of space space than I did. You said it was uh, being able to speak your mind without fear of retaliation or attack. You know, if I say, you know, I just got married to my same-sex spouse and, you know, someone attacks that act, you know, that's an attack. So that's an attack on my identity, my union. And so how how is, you know, what you talked about, opening that up for debate consistent with upholding the idea of safe spaces that you articulate? This is this would not be a real classroom debate. I mean, we would not be debating Michael's marriage to John. We wouldn't, I mean, in other words, I wouldn't come to class and Michael got married, let's debate whether he should have been able to marry. That's just not a real issue. What would be a real issue is what is the nature of marriage and how should we define it? And if you can take it away from an attack on Michael and John and t- turn it into a conversation about the principles at stake and have everyone in the classroom realize they can make a mistake, they could choose the wrong principle, they can make a bad argument, and there won't be retaliation or retribution then it's a safe But for the person who is, is, is in a same-sex relationship... It'll be hard would it, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be hard. It's precisely. It would be hard for them. Just, and we, we need to allow these debates, even though they're hard, even though it, it might not feel safe. Right. But it, it's safe enough for them to tolerate the debate without feeling that they are being excluded from the community. Um, if, if someone says, well, you're only here because we let in people from your race, then what we're saying is you don't actually even belong in the room with us. But what if they say to you, you make this debate, you, you stage this debate, I, they, I say to you, you know what, this makes me feel extraordinarily uncomfortable. This is my identity that you're debating here as if it's some abstract ideal. You know, my life and, and my safety, my sanctity, my family hinges on this, and I feel profoundly unsafe in this classroom. Would you shut the debate down? No, I would actually say, well, let's talk about that. And I would try to turn that into a teachable moment where some people, the class may conclude, actually, the class may conclude we shouldn't do this. But it would, be a, it would be a product of a classroom if people felt, I actually count enough, I belong in this classroom, I can risk saying things that might be offensive. I, mean, I think yeah, that's I, great, I, but I don't I, I would, think it's space. I want to move on to uh, some more questions. And uh, right down in the front here, please. And the mic's going to come down f- to uh, f- the first row. Yeah, thanks. And if you, if you wouldn't mind standing up. And first names are fine with us as well. Uh, my name is Lucy. 
Um, my question is, do you believe that campuses are currently so inundated by aggressive and critical opinions that they are largely unsafe spaces right now? And if so, should we not be turning our attention to why this is and why students feel so unsafe? Ash, would you like to take that? Sometimes. Not always. I think it depends on the student, and I think it depends a lot on the campus. Um, I think it's complicated, right? This is actually one of the reasons why I so strongly do believe in safe spaces, is because I think it is impossible to make the entire campus entirely safe, because I agree, a large censorship machine at that level is risky and very difficult to operate. I mean, I I wouldn't want to be in charge of it. You agree. Um, So while we need to work on that, and we we need to actually... That is more about teaching. It is more, instead of silencing, we need to learn to teach students who are saying things which, frankly, are offending other students why those other students might find it offensive and why that might be reasonable. Now, some students are going to go ahead and do it anyway, right? But I actually think most people are decent people. Most people don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And so I don't... There, I'm a believer rather in the educative function of the university rather in the silencing function. But yes, it's a problem. David, if college and university campuses have a multitude of ideas, that's a great thing to be celebrated. It's not to be feared. We want people from, with, with different arguments to come forth with their viewpoints, right? That's, that's the beauty of a college and university campus. I mean, think about when you went to college, the divisive topics, right? Abortion, affirmative action, capital punishment, uh, immigration reform, gun control. We want, if, if, you, if you've always kept the same view on all those issues, then yeah, let's go have some safe space, be coddled, be, be thrown in a cocoon and live in an echo chamber. That's not what we want in a free society. We want more ideas. Okay, another question? Sorry, I'm having a little bit of difficulty seeing everybody. Over on the far side there. Oh, I'm sorry, there was a gentleman who thought it was his question before, did, and, I, and I felt like I took that option away from you, so <laughs> take it back. That's kind of you. Uh, yeah. So my name is Tom, uh, uh, t- uh, uh, um, Tom McLeish. I come, as you can probably hear from my accent, from a country without a First Amendment, actually without even a constitution in the first place, but we nonetheless treasure free speech. Now, I have a complaint for, and a question for all the candidates. We so were it's promised... called an Oxford-style debate, so we stole the idea. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Can we talk about the other place? Um, uh, the... Didn't know, sorry. So... Touched a nerve, sorry. Durham, yeah, quite. The, um, uh, so, Michael, we were promised a debate in which, the, in this particular case, the, the uh, uh, proponents and opponents would not talk past each other. But I've had an hour here listening to a wonderful, very exciting time, but there has been a fair amount of talking past each other. So I've got confused between um, freedom of speech and, and, and freedom not to listen. I'm worried about David's point. He seems to be uh, insisting on uh, my lack of freedom to listen to any old stuff, uh, to find no place in which I can find uh, momentarily a place not to be bombarded by uh, offensive material, Um, whereas I'm finding the opponents attractive by describing uh, home spaces that we all need while defending an experience of... I've opened listening. So, so how are we getting, aren't we getting some... Can you clarify this for me? What is a safe space? And does everyone... Do, do people have rights not to listen? Well, let me, let me... I want to take it just the last question because we, I think we have been kicking around the idea of what is a safe space and perhaps it's going to be unresolved 
but it won't be in the next one minute that we have left to do that. So uh, the right not to listen, you've been accused of actually arguing for that, David, is that? I believe in the right to receive information and ideas. In the First Amendment community, we often talk about simply the First Amendment rights of the speaker, but there are also First Amendment rights of the listener, and it's the right to receive information and ideas. And when we shut down the ideas, when we, when we dampen discourse, we're infringing on the right to receive information and ideas as well. I think David spoke past the question. I think the, question, the answer to your question is, of course you have a right not to listen. Why does anyone in the world, in public, I may have to put up with it, but in spaces where I, I want to be left alone and can be left alone, of course I have a right not to listen. Right? If someone comes to my door and knocks and says, I'm going to give you a 20-minute lecture on white supremacy, I'm going to close that door. Right? Justice, I'm perfectly justice. within my light. I mean, or any idea I don't want to hear, right? Which is not to say that person does not have a First Amendment right to participate in public discourse in public places, but I don't have to listen to them, even when they're speaking in a park. I don't have to stop and listen. That would, be, uh, that would make the First Amendment a bludgeon. But that's fundamentally different than a safe space that shuts off ideas in the first place. And yes, you do have a right not to listen. Justice John Marshall Holland referred to it directly in Cohen v. California, which I've already mentioned. He said, avert your eyes. But that's in public places. That was in the L.A. County Courthouse. Well, a lot of college and university campuses are public. Right, but, not, but, no, no, but, but I'm, not, I'm saying that college campuses can be segmented, right? I'm not suggesting that the square in a college campus here, can be converted into you know, a but here's the thing, Ash. Also, you know, like say a black house or uh, that meeting you described of, uh, you know, student immigration and activists, you know, there could be a diversity of ideas there. There could be criticism there. There could be deep disputes over tactics, methods, priorities. You know, it, it can get contentious. And, you know, so I think absolutely freedom of association, you can associate it on any basis, but that doesn't mean ideas are excluded, arguments are excluded, criticism is excluded. That if you can have an, um, an African-American house, you can have a Hillel on campus, and the, the fact that you go there to talk to people who share some of your ideas doesn't mean that all ideas are excluded there and that there's no freedom of speech. Right, but then you're not you free can't... of re- the danger of retaliation or attack. Oh. I mean, that can happen even in these closed spaces. Well, retali- right? you, disagreement is not the same as retaliation and, and attack. You, you have disagreement and you have the exchange of ideas, but you do so within um, a border. <laughs> um, and, and that is different in classrooms than it is in the Hillel. Um, it's different in the chapel. It's different Sunday morning than it is when the chapel is used for something else. And the idea that you couldn't segment the campus into some spaces that are safe for some students some of the time, uh, that, that seems an odd idea. Okay, I'd like to go. And, sir, I, I, I thank you for your question, and I recognize the, that your critique is not completely unfounded, but that train had left the station. But thank you for the, for the question. And, and if there's anybody who would, would like to ask a question that I would actually like to get into the mix, it's the issue that Bob Rosencrantz mentioned in the beginning, this notion of whether the, the lack of safety, uh, is, is there evidence or a suggestion that the feelings of unsafety, unsafeness on the parts of students can actually be detrimental to their ability to perform academically? But I would like with the question, if anybody wants to do it or has been dying to ask that question, to come from you. Um, anybody <laughs> want to take that on? Come on. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back. Oh, sir, you're going to do your own question or that question? I'm probably going to do my own question, but I want to... Fair enough. <laughs> Free speech. Screw you. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> then I'll ask it later. No, I know. I want, to, I want to come back to it. I, I wonder if we're talking past each other, because I hear muddy terms of reference, too. We're talking about the what, and I feel like we're missing the how. Hmm. 
The most compelling argument that I heard for the left side over here is the argument that Mike made about how the he fourth side. I'm, I'm, I'm only Sorry. saying that for the people who are listening, Sorry. not seeing, sir. The fourth yeah. side is the side from the against side, which is how Mike runs his classroom, which is to say what we're talking about is a failure of leadership, a failure of leadership by professors who are unable or unwilling to create that context and draw the red lines and say, you're going to listen. If you don't want to listen, you have to leave. I think that's a huge deal. Okay, so what's and, your and question? Then it's, sorry, then it's amplified. It's a whole other thing. But by grade inflation, we tell these kids they walk okay, in. Okay, sir, I, I, need, I need you to zero in on a question for these guys. The question is, are we talking past each other? We're, I've heard a lot of agreement between the both sides, actually. Well, yeah. But it comes down to leadership of professors in the classroom and who is equipped a leader to have this conversation and draw a hard line and say you're going to listen because we're in the classroom. So what's your, your question is, are they talking past each other? I'm talking about the how of leadership and the facilitator of the professor versus the idea of the what of a safe space. I, okay, let's, I understand that. Let's take... Uh, I, I, think it's, it's, I think we, we would all agree, I, I think, that it would be preferable if in, in classroom experience for professors to create an environment for a robust exchange of ideas, but where everyone felt included, that, that, that they were me- full members of that discussion. Um, and that that's much better handled by the teacher herself or himself than it is by a, a dean or even a president. Would a response on this side, or we can go to more questions? You can keep going. Okay, let's go to another question. Ma'am, right in the center. And the camera's up. You're right by the camera, and the mic's coming into you. Thank you. Um, the world is not a safe space. Could you, could you just tell us your name, please? Oh, sorry, Hillary. The world is not a safe space, and we survive by learning to make our own safe spaces. So if we as young people have universities creating safe spaces for us, how will we ever learn to carve out our own safe space in the world? Let's take that question to Ash. Great question. I, I think the answer is simple. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, the problem is you have a home that you can retreat to. These students do not, and so they need, because they are surrounded by the university at all times, if the university says no, you're out of luck. What are you going to do? Um, it's a special circumstance. Campuses are strange creatures because they are a mixture of many, many, many different things. Um, and to treat them as a sort of un, un, a whole, as if they're sort of generic, I think is wrong. University, in my view, has a absolute right to help students create safe spaces of the sort that when they are adults off campus and have control over their lives more, they will do for themselves. But the university should not make the entire campus a safe space. No one is talking about suppressing ideas. Response from the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's a bit of a confused argument because if it's their home 24-7, you know, and they need safety to be able to inhabit that home, you know, then inevitably that brings up the role of the institution in generating that safety, which I think you agree with. So, it's not just a matter of what happens, you know, when the four of us gather uh, in a room together or a club meets. It's really a larger question of what happens on campus. And I think this term safety, which it, with its malleability and nebulousness, and we've talked about one person's safety being dangerous for another person, the kinds of uh, criticisms and attacks and, and, and perhaps undermining of emotional safety that can happen even in a closed space just makes this term very problematic, and it leads to what you're talking about, which is a sense on the part of the institution that they need to step in, that students can't navigate this for themselves, that they have to come in, and inevitably, you know, they're coming in to, to suppress speech, I mean, and, and the, 
The concern of safety is being pitted against speech, and it opens the door to censorship. So that's, that's the, why this term can be dangerous. We don't have to prove it. it's inherently dangerous. We just have to prove that it can be dangerous. Michael Roth. Yeah, lots of, th- lots of things can be, da- can be dangerous. Uh, that, that is true. I, I do think we have to remember that these students are well aware that when they graduate, they'll have to make their own spaces. They're well aware that in, a, in the United States today that they will be entering in a world where they'll be much less likely to interact with people who don't share their views. They'll be entering a world of much more intensive inequality than their, any previous generation has seen for at least 100 years. They'll be entering in a world of much greater segregation uh, than, than we've seen in, in a long, long time in the United States. They're well aware of the hostility of the world. And so it seems to me that in a learning environment, you're not censoring ideas. You're trying to give people the power to, to consider ideas that are uh, radical for them, that challenge their presuppositions, but they do so while feeling they are full members of a university community. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each, and Suzanne, you can return. Speaking first to make her closing statement in support of the motion, here is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. Okay, we're going to very quickly try to weigh this debate for you, and then I'm going to, if I have time, I'm going to paint a picture. So they have argued that the campus must be a welcoming and belo- uh, environment that fosters belonging for diverse students, and that to do so, we have to open the door to the policing of speech through the maintenance of safe spaces. We have argued that, yes, the campus must address the needs of demographically diverse student bodies, that they need to create greater belonging, but that this can and must be accomplished without any compromising of the most robust protections for free speech or academic freedom. We tell a story about UC Berkeley. Uh, you know, it's one of the most diverse campuses uh, in the United States, in the state of California, the most diverse state in the union. Uh, it's a place where... Uh, minority students uh, comprise a large portion of the student population. There are a lot of faculty of color. Uh, there are all kinds of student organizations. You know, it's, uh, you know if, if such a thing were to exist, it is a space where students of color feel very comfortable. And so what happened on that campus? There was an uh, effort to bring conservative uh, speaker who was very controversial to campus, Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, there was, the university became alarmed. They put very strict restrictions on when he could come, where he could come, restrictions to the point where people weren't going to be able to attend the speech. And, uh, you know, what happened when he finally came to campus was things exploded. Uh, it became violent. There was property damage. The university, over time, has had to uh, spend, I think, close to a million dollars addressing security needs. And, uh, you know, it, it's become the Do- Department of Justice has intervened in a lawsuit now challenging the university. Why did this happen? I went there, talk, spoke to Republican students, and they said it happened because they felt so marginalized on campus. They couldn't speak up. They couldn't get book rooms for their meetings. They couldn't get faculty advisors for their clubs. We need to make sure that our campuses are open both to all sets of people and all ideas. For that, please vote for the proposition. Thank you, Suzanne Ossel. And that proposition again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here making his closing statement against the proposition, Ash Bhagwat, law professor at UC Davis. So I'm going to start by... Um, responding to Suzanne, I think she's done what I said people do, which is conflating the controversial speaker issue with the safe space issue. No one is talking 
at least on our side, about making the entire college campus a ex-ideology-free zone. That's simply not what we're supporting. Um, I also want to emphasize there is this story that's being told about how current students are oversensitive, they're they're snowflakes, I hate that word. I've been teaching for 24 years, it's utter nonsense. My students today are just as tough-minded, just as independent, just as able to listen to ideas they disagree with as ever in the past quarter century. It's just not true. They are more assertive. They are less willing to accept inequities that they see in the world around them. And I think part of what's going on is people don't like that. Um, I also want you to bear in mind something important, which is when you're an outsider or feel like an outsider, safe spaces are more important. The most important safe spaces in American history were African-American churches during the period of Jim Crow and the Civil Rights era. They were important precisely because they were safe and places to organize the civil rights movement. Um, That's what's Basically, the same dynamic is what's going on on campuses and throughout our society today. And I think the question you should ask yourself is, not do you like free speech? I love free speech. I've spent my career writing about how great free speech is. The question is, do you like free speech everywhere all the time? Or do you sometimes just want to be left alone with people who you like and agree with? And if you do feel that way sometimes, then I feel you have to vote against this motion because students have that right too. Thank you. Ash Bhagwat. The motion again, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, David Hudson Jr., First Amendment scholar and law professor at Vanderbilt University. Thank you so much. I'm a licensed boxing judge. I've judged 12 world title fights across the globe. I've even judged the World Heavyweight Championship, WBC champion Deontay Wilder against Chris Areola in July 2016. But this is even a greater fight. It's the fight for free speech in a free society. The arguments made about the civil rights movement, you know what John Lewis said about the civil rights movement without the First Amendment? It would be a bird without wings. The First Amendment was absolutely essential to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. It was the precedent of Terminello versus City of Chicago that protected the rights uh, of of an anti-Semitic speaker that protected the rights of civil rights activist Fred Shuttlesworth. We must protect free speech. Where else can speech thrive? except at a college and university campus. What's the primary reason that people go to a college or university campus? They go to learn. They go for intellectual development. They go to confront new ideas. They go to develop as a fully functioning human being. The First Amendment provides that. A high purpose of the First Amendment is the right to individual self-fulfillment, the right to freedom of expression, the right to viewpoint. I close with the words of John Milton and Areopagitica. Though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field. We do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Keep colleges free and open. Keep them open to ideas. Colleges are not kindergarten. Thank you. Thank you, David Hudson.
The motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Here making his closing statement against the motion, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University. It's a pleasure to hear these great defenses of the First Amendment. Um, I think uh, we have wonderful advocates for free speech. Remember, Milton said his, his call for free speech is only for Protestants. Catholics, he said, then we extirpate. So everybody has their limit of what they, they everyone has their limit of who they will protect. Um, and at colleges and universities today, it is very much the case that there is a strong bias, sometimes on the faculty, often on the faculty, often on the students, uh, f- towards the left. This is not new. This is uh, perhaps something to do with the age of students, uh, but something to do with the politics of our country right now. Our country, by which I mean, sorry, my Canadian friends, um, uh, the, Uni- the United States. Uh, I have started a program at Wesleyan University to uh, bring more conservative thinkers to campus, more conservative professors, army uh, generals or colonels who are retiring from the armed forces to teach courses in international relations and political science, because I think our conservative students need to feel they too can express their views. And I'll close with a story, um, uh, uh, not from the uh, annals of the law books, but from a a student of mine who came uh, to talk to me uh, this year, and she said, as a religious student... She did not feel that she could go to class and be taken seriously. She felt that when she went to her English professor's class and she said, I am a believer, I am a student of faith, the professor thought, well, you're an absolutist, you can't take ideas seriously. She wasn't saying, the student wasn't saying that. The student was saying, I could take a discussion of religion seriously, but don't dismiss me because I'm a Christian. Don't dismiss me because of who I am. She has no problem with the rough and tumble of intellectual debate. She has a problem with prejudice that retaliates against who you are and punishes you for what you believe. We need spaces for those students so they can recharge and be ready for the next debate. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Roth. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has been more persuasive. I want to ask you again to go to your mobile devices and vote a second time. Same as before, iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll be given the choice to vote for, against, or undecided. And we'll lock that out in a couple of minutes. And I want to remind you that the way we determine victory is we give it to the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage points between the first and the second votes. So it's the difference between the two votes. And while you're doing that, um, the first thing I want to say is that... um, uh, I, I want to I thank you and audience. First of all, I really want to compliment your applause, applaud skills. Uh, <laughs> applause skills. They were, they were excellent. Um, and also, everybody who got up and asked a question, uh, they were all good. Uh, very often when we do these in New York, I end up throwing out the questions, and I didn't throw out a single one tonight. And, um, and, and the critique, which, as I said, was not completely unfounded, that to a degree there was a lot of overlap and agreement, I, I like to think of that as four debaters who are actually able to listen to each other and live with nuance. So I want to thank all four of you for the spirit in which you debated this, this motion. I know that you all feel passionately about it, but it was also clear that you respect each other and you respect the process that we're trying to bring here. So thank you for the way that you all did that. Uh, um, in a few days, uh, Intelligence Squared is heading uh, south to Aspen, Colorado. We're going to be putting in two debates next week at the Aspen Ideas Festival. On Tuesday, we're going to be debating social media is good for democracy. And on Thursday, the motion is globalization has undermined America's 
working class. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are going to join us in Aspen, but I want to let you know that you can watch uh, our live stream if you're interested in those. And then, of course, uh, those debates like this one will be living on uh, forever on our podcast, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts or on Google Play. And you can get any of our past, I think now 158, 159 debates that we've done. Uh, And it's really surprising how many of them, even the ones that were done uh, eight to ten years ago, still hold up and are still still really relevant. Uh, Very recently, we did did a very good debate on North Korea and the prospect for negotiations actually to work out. And we did that before uh, the visit to to, uh, uh, Singapore. And interestingly, that debate has become more interesting as a result of what's (laughs) happened here. So I'd like to recommend that to you. Um, So one thing I'd like to ask... uh, all, all four of the debaters, I wrote a note to myself or was, had some help in writing it, um, just to chat about while we're waiting for the, uh, for the uh, results to come out. Um, we, we, we were talking about safe spaces in the university, and there's been a lot of this talk about, well, are we preparing students to go out into the world, the harsh world? And the, the question is, once that, this cohort of students who, who are, as you said, are making these demands and uh, uh, are speaking up for themselves and advocating for themselves in a new way, once they reach the workplace, do you think the workplace potentially will change and start to develop safe spaces in a way that uh, universities are struggling with now? Do you think that, do you, any of you see that coming? I'll start with you, Ash. I think it is happening. I think the Me Too movement is a good indication of that. I mean, that's, that's, this should be, a lot of sexual harassment is verbal, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, the workplace needs to change. I mean, if there's anything we've learned in the last year, that's, that's evident. David, what, is, what do you think about that point? That's a good point. I mean, um, there needs to be some change. Uh, you know, the, the one thing I, we went back to, there was a, we're going back and forth about harassment law, and I, I did agree with uh, something they said about the requirement to show, to prove harassment, you have to show that the harassment is severe and pervasive. And I sometimes go back in my mind, I think it's okay to have the severe and pervasive requirement, but perhaps recognize that sometimes there can be a single act or two that's egregious enough Mm -hmm. that would constitute severe and pervasive harassment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very difficult issue. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to prove. Mm. It's not, not only about the specific <clears throat> incident, right? It creates, everybody in the room will know about it, people in the department know about it and, it, and it creates, it pollutes the marketplace. It's like having somebody who comes to the marketplace and is an egregious polluter, and that's something you need to protect against. Suzanne? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, the, the work setting already is uh, much more stringently regulated when it comes to speech under the Equal Employment Opportunity Act and other laws. You, know, you can't put sort of like a swimsuit calendar or something, you know, in your office, whereas on campus you could. And, I, you know, and I, I think that's probably the right thing. We want more freedom on campus. The campus has a particular role, you know, in our society that the workplace doesn't. So I think that's probably appropriate. And one thing that worries me is there is this pattern of private actors you know, increasingly punishing people for speech. You know, Reza Aslan losing his show on CNN because, you know, he had a tweet, uh, you know, that, that they didn't like politically. You know, and a number of other examples, uh, ESPN anchor. And so I think, you know, there's, there's part of it that's good, which is greater awareness of conduct that can make the workplace, you know, uncomfortable for others. And I think the conscientiousness of that is a, is a terrific thing. But I think there is a risk, uh, you know, that we are in some instances going too far in terms of constraining speech. And the, and the real risk, I think, too, is the people losing jobs for social media posts. 
some of those social media posts have nothing actually to do with their day-to-day work. Mm. And so to me, that is a troubling trend. That, that'd actually be a great intelligence debate if they haven't had one. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> All right, I have the results. I want to remind you again that we've had you vote twice, and it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. The resolution is this. Trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. In the first vote, 57% of you agreed with the motion. 25% were against, and 18% were undecided. Again, those are the first results, and it's the difference between this and the next thing I'm about to say that will determine our winner. The team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 57%. Their second vote was 56%. They lost a percentage point. Um, the team against the motion, their first vote was 25%. Their second vote was 35%. They pulled up over 10 percentage points. That's enough to make them the winner. The team arguing against the motion, trigger warning, safe spaces are dangerous. Our winner by our audience here tonight. But remember, this debate isn't over. Our audiences tuning in online on public radio and on our podcast still have time to vote. You can see those results, which are ongoing, at iq2us.org. Thank you very much. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time.